Hi everyone, it's Sophie here. Just wanted to let you know about another podcast I host. It's an S-Pod thing, revisiting every episode of S-Club 7's insane TV show. With a different guest each week, we analyse the show in more detail than anyone ever asked for. This is Sex and the City for kids. None of this makes any sense. Yeah, I can't imagine anyone's binge-watched this, anyone who's not on drugs. Listen to It's an S-Pod thing wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Smashed Prawns in a Milky Basket, a podcast about the work of comedy writer, performer, director, and all-round genius, Julia Davis. I'm Sophie Davis, no relation, and on each episode, I'm joined by a guest to talk about a different show created by Julia Davis. In this episode, I'm joined by very special guest, Rufus Jones, to talk about his roles in Hunderby, Camping, and more. So there's a lot to talk about, but first I'd like to go back to mongrels really, because that was the first, (laughs) that was the first thing that I saw you in, or I suppose heard you in because it was your, your voice. Did you know that it's actually 10 years old this month? I did not know that, but that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. June, 2010. What do you remember about that time? Uh, I remember, I remember doing a pilot. And then having to um, having to sort of recast for it again and again and again because it's the BBC and they make you do that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, I had to kind of sing for my supper a little bit. Um, and because I was, I, I hadn't done all that much at that point. It was kind of the first bigger thing I'd, I'd ever done. And um, and we recorded it in Soho in a in a tiny little recording studio, sort of below ground. And uh, next door, John Hurt was there recording something. We got to meet him. <laughs> and, um, and it would be me, Lucy Montgomery, Dan Tetzel, Paul Kay, uh, Ruth Brown, all in a very, very tiny room. Um, and the scripts by John Brown and, and Danny Peake would all be written uh, sort of separate and, and in the months kind of before. And really, it was the easiest job ever because we would come and voice it in about 10 days and lock about and have fun and and it was uh it was actually all recorded sort of um communally if that makes sense often when you do animation you do your bit in isolation yeah uh so you never actually get to meet each other but in this case uh we're all in the same room doing it which is which is unusual but it shouldn't be i think because it it gives the whole thing an immediacy and and you all sort of bounce off each other um a lot better and i think that i think that comes through in the show yeah and such a a good cast yeah yeah it was a great cast and getting to meet i mean i i, I knew everyone a little bit but getting to meet paul k was a, a big deal and we've we've done stuff together since and mm. he's um he's brilliant and uh, yeah the, the whole thing was terrific and we did two series and i think it i think it was really well received and it's got a really loyal following every now and again you know i get i get contacted by 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 some by some sort of mon- mongrels fan and uh yeah it's um it, it had a real effect but it was very it was very expensive i think uh to make because mm. because the sets were really elaborate and they were all built on stilts down at twickenham studios so everything was about six feet in the air and uh the puppet so that the puppeteers could get underneath it and um and it was a whole sound stage and uh it, yeah it was a big big um project uh 
and I think sort of yeah after two series I'm not sure I'm not sure the BBC could find the money for it but it was a shame because it was just beginning to take off it felt like yeah sort of culturally um but hey you know these things happen but it was yeah it was a great experience yeah it, it felt like it ended too soon yeah I was a fan I still oh, occasionally good. watch some of the uh the songs on YouTube because they're do you yeah yeah you got to sing at the Albert Hall at one point I think I did. Well, I kind of got to speak at the Albert Hall, yeah, because <laughs> I, I, I can't sing. But uh, I can sort of do a, a Rex Harrison impression and sort of talk through it. And yeah, we did a, there, there was a comedy prom um, hosted by Tim Minchin and uh, right. Sue Perkins. And, and yeah, we did the the, mid, the middle class's magical song. And um, it was it was crazy. It was crazy to... <laughs> For, for for our sort of humble little show to end up there it was um it was a real treat yeah the more i think i haven't thought about it in a long time but it was a real it was a real ride that show um and, and a lot of a lot of people sort of emerged from it uh it was their kind of big break um none more so than john brown the writer who now now writes on succession and veep and yeah, stuff like sure. that and he's a, a lovely incredibly talented guy so so yes that was his his big sort of passport um and uh yeah we all did we all did very well out of it i remember stephen mccrum the the producer telling me in the second season that i i was asking him what he was up to next and he said oh there's this guy called brendan o'carroll who has a character called mrs <laughs> brown and i'm going up I'm going up to liverpool <laughs> to watch him i'm taking the head of bbc comedy i'm trying to persuade her and you know wow five series <laughs> and you know a hundred million people later he's yeah. uh he's got a good nose for stuff Stephen. Yeah. Yeah, who would have thought it as well? I know, I know. Um, so after Mongrels, I think the next thing I saw you in was Holy Flying Circus. Um, oh, so yes, what was right. that like playing the late great Terry Jones? Yeah, that was that was a big a big deal for me. It was, um, I mean, Mongrels was kind of the first time I was a kind of lead in in some version you know but holy flying circus was was the first time i'd ever sort of been on screen with that much to do and it was it was great there was a lot of there was a lot of sort of pressure it felt like just because you were sort of going into the sort of inner sanctum of <laughs> british comedy and uh and uh sort of doing sort of doing impersonations but also just they weren't so much impersonations and more just riffs on on these kind of iconic people, but the, the Tony Roach's script was uh, extraordinary, and um, the script is really the star of the whole thing. It was it was so clearly above and beyond in terms of its ambition um, what anyone might have expected a, a Monty Python biopic to be. It was just it was just the best one of the best scripts I've ever I've ever read, and, um, and getting getting it was a real thrill and we we filmed very very quickly because there wasn't a lot of money but uh it was it, it shows with really good scripts are so much easier to do because when you know when it's not good you spend a lot of your time as an actor kind of firefighting you know and trying to try to find uh trying to find something to kind of tease the comedy out or tease the the drama out but this was i just remember it being just a, a hugely enjoyable period because every scene had had about 10 lines that you couldn't wait to deliver, you know? So, um, and it had a, it had just a lovely response. I think it, it, yeah, it wasn't the show that maybe people were expecting and it ended up, ended up having a lot to say, not so much about Monty Python, but more about, you know, sort of blasphemy and, 
freedom of speech and yeah. you know kind of where Britain was in the late seventies and um, it was just jam packed as a show uh, and and um, yeah Owen Harris directed that and he has since gone on to do a lot of uh, Black Mirror with Charlie Brooker and. Mm-hmm. And it was his kind of first big thing too. So I, I think I think it was kind of a lot of people's first big opportunity to do something. It was Tony Roach's first, first big, uh, sort of thing. I think mm-hmm. maybe because he was a, he was a staff writer on Thick of It, but this was his first big authored thing. It was certainly my my biggest thing. Uh, Darren Boyd was taking on John Cleese, so that was a big deal. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, and and it was Owen the director's first. Uh, first attempt at something really authored so yeah there was a lot sort of a lot riding on it and a lot of a lot of hungry artists you know sort of um making it come about so it was yeah it was a thrill i think of everything i've done it's the one it's kind of the one that's followed me around most which is really gratifying because it had the potential to be a really sort of niche subject but mm-hmm. i think it, everyone i don't know it, some people just love it as a piece of sort of comedy and and other people just love it as a sort of, you know, yeah, and a, a sort of account of history, really. Yeah, I think because the Pythons are so kind of sacred to people, if there yeah. had been something even slightly off about it, I think people would have just jumped on it, wouldn't they? Whereas it, it was yeah, so good. Right. I mean, it, it, would, it would have been an easy thing to kind of get wrong. But yeah, like yeah. you said, people remember it so fondly. They did. I think I because think Tony, Tony, the writer, was able to riff in the key of Python without mm-hmm. becoming a slave to it. So it was actually unlike Python. It was very sweary. It had that sort of, uh, I don't know that, that it was a kind of curious mix of sort of contemporary, uh, contemporary sort of comedy styles and then something more, more, more Pythonic and Pythonesque. And it was just a real mashup. And it was, and th- that was what made it sort of, uh, most faithful to Python, not that it was trying to ape Python, but it, it was trying to really um, send you in a million different directions, which is sort of what they did so so brilliantly. So it was kind of more yeah. in their spirit than sort of slavishly trying to impersonate them, you know? Yeah, sure. And did you get to meet Terry at all? I did, I did. Um, yes, I was contacted by a friend of his and, uh, and I went down uh, to a pub in Highgate where Terry was sitting there with, with Barry Cryer and uh, wow. <laughs> and he, he fed me about eight pints of lager and bought me dinner and um and he loved it and uh and we just yeah we just kind of talked turkey all night and he just told stories with with Barry Cryer and um was just yeah it was just lovely and generous and um exactly as kind of teddy bearish and uh and and effusively sort of loving and lovable as you'd want him to be really. He's just a very, yeah, I think he was a very sort of heart on his sleeve guy and very, mm-hmm. very passionate and, and, you know, was a hustler, I think, and was never stopped working. And you sort of, you put a lot of these pythons in sort of these ivory towers, but actually a lot of them are very, I think they're all very, very driven, you know, whether it's, um whether, yeah, I mean, absolutely all of them continue to work and and found it surprisingly i think always found it surprisingly tough to get their stuff away um you know i, I don't think being a python necessarily opened all the doors you expected it to so so i think terry had a very kind of hustler quality and was just really uh impressed at what holy flying circus achieved um mm-hmm. 
and uh, and 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 wanted to celebrate it as a punter more than anything else, and as a as a sort of co-creator, and that was that was amazingly humbling. Yeah, yeah. Everyone who's met Terry Jones seems to have just nothing but good things to say. So yeah, nice he was hear. the real deal. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I've got a couple of lovely, very drunk photos from that night. Which, uh, <laughs> yeah, which are very very dear to me yeah so um that probably now brings us to hunderby uh in which you obviously played dr fogarty as far as i'm aware you uh auditioned for that part is that right had you met oh very much so um yeah i had i i had met jules very briefly for a part in nighty nights um, I don't think wow. she remembers this, like back in 2007 <laughs> or something. It was like a one-line role, and I, I remember it being spectacularly bad, and it was a very quick audition, <laughs> and I wasn't right anyway. And uh, and I just never really expected, I don't know, I, I never really expected me to be her sort of performer, actually. I, I, I don't quite mm. know why, but probably because I didn't get a job in 1990. I just thought, oh, okay, <laughs> that's all right. And, I, you know, it's a huge fan like everyone else, but... um. Yeah, then then uh, Hunderby came along, and I think Jules has always been very open with her auditions. I think sort of uh, she keeps, I don't know, she, she she does kind of keep employing the same people just because there's a sort of level of trust in the writing and sort of her worlds, which is very important to kind of have. Mm-hmm. But she's also very good at bringing in new people, and I remember. I remember getting Hunderby and reading it and like a bit like Holy Flying Circus, actually sort of feeling, feeling very sure about how I'd want to do it. If that makes sense Mm -hmm. Um, about how that character would sound a sort of riff on Colin Firth and, and Mm -hmm. and something, something slightly older actually in Colin Firth. Cause the truth is kind of those nineties Jane Austen adaptations, which I guess it's sort of nominally uh, riffs on, or at least Fogarty riffs on, um, they, they were actually quite good, you know, and Colin Firth's actually mm-hmm. really good in it. It's it's the the kind of 80s, um, <laughs> the, the 80s costume dramas. There was one of Jane Eyre with Timothy Dalton that I remember watching. Yes. And that was, that was uh, you know, I love Timothy Dalton, but it was kind of just stylistically very ripe and very, uh, mm. <laughs> very big. And that was just yeah. the style of the day. And I think sort of um, having, that was kind of what I decided Fogarty would be someone sort of quite self-consciously dramatic and quite I don't know oddly quite camp in that way you know everything is everything with him is incredibly high stakes and very um uh very solemn and um uh once I sort of found that key I went in and read with Jules and it went very well and then I we had a second meeting and I remember we read pretty much the entire part so we did we just skipped from scene to scene across six episodes and it took about an hour and a half with her just reading in the other bits. So I think I read pretty much every line of Fogarty. I thorough. Yeah, and enormously so. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I think it's fair to say I probably wasn't first choice because we'd never met, you know, so there was no sense in which um, she expected me to, to, to be him. But I think mm-hmm. by the end of that... Uh, uh, things were looking good. And then I had a final sort of chemistry read with four actors who were going to play the Helen role, one of whom was Alex Roach. And so yeah, uh, sort of by then it was just sort of, yeah, we, we whittled it down. It was quite sort of, yeah, it was quite sort of an intense um, 
audition process. But yeah, it had to be because she didn't know me. And also it allowed me to really get my feet under the table with the character and really sort of understand maybe how, how the whole thing might tick. And then, uh, yeah, you're off to the races and we were filming sort of two weeks later, I guess. Well, that's quite quick. <laughs> it was damn quick. Yeah. And it always is. I think there's always this sense. There's still this sense that, you know, you audition and then you have a month of rehearsals and then you're sort of, you know, uh, the camera rolls and you all know exactly what you're doing. The, the fact is TV is chaos and you have to kind of hit the ground running with a very kind of firm idea of what you want to do because there's no there's no real time to discover as you go along because if you do that, uh, you only sort of really get to understand what you're doing in the third week and you've already shot, <laughs> you've already shot three episodes, you know. So um, that audition process was really good for me to kind of find out uh, how I'd do it and how uh how Jules would do it and we had a read through and I remember I remember it was a packed read through and Armando Iannucci was there because he was an exec oh wow he was an exec producer and that was like having having the pope come and you know it was like <laughs> a pope coming to your Sunday school and uh, I'd never really I'd done a couple of things with Armando but I'd never really sort of met him and I remember I remember sort of in episode two doing something and it got a laugh in the room and I remember sort of arbitrarily looking up at Armando and he was staring straight at me and he gave me a big thumbs up and I remember that <laughs> that w- that meant the world it's those little things especially when you're just starting out those um those little moments really stay with you because you're you're constantly looking for for affirmation when you're when you're relatively inexperienced and that was yeah, that meant a lot. Yeah, so was the show quite tightly scripted then? Yeah, enormously, enormously. I can think of one bit in two series mm-hmm. that I improvised, uh, which was um, when Helen and I are shagging and <laughs> the uh, I am arriving, I'm arriving. That was, oh, right. <laughs> that, was one, that was one line I tried out on the day that made the edit. But everything, it, 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 was, it was sort of almost impossible, almost impossible to improvise in that in that sort of language, in that kind of... Yeah, sure. That kind of cod, gothic, high kind of um, high literature sort of way. <laughs> what what Jules and Barunka, the co-writer, had had uh, sort of invented there was like, it was almost like kind of Anthony Burgess in A Clockwork Orange, you know, he kind of invents this, this language. They yeah, really had, yeah. like, invented this whole vocabulary, which was consistent and hilarious. And there was just no... The truth is with improvisation is is you you do it when there's a better alternative possibly you know and, and in Hunderby there were no there were no better alternatives it was all about just just absolutely trying to serve the the script and um, a bit like Holy Flying Circus you know every day had about ten lines that you couldn't wait to to get to and you know as as a comic actor you very rarely get to dress up like that as well most comedy especially comedy that was being made 10 years ago was set in offices and it was all set within the m25 and it was contemporary and and you were generally wearing jeans or a suit and tie and and this was an opportunity for all of us to you know get to do what the dramatic actors did you know and which comic actors very rarely get to do so it was it was an enormous adventure for me and Alex McQueen and, and and everyone. It was yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah, I think I've heard Alex McQueen say that he kind of turned up from the thick of it and maybe tried to improvise a little bit, and everyone was kind of like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Alex. <laughs> anyone who knows Alex will tell you that um, 
when it comes to line learning, he is not a Zen master, <laughs> should we say. He, um, he, he likes to keep things a little loosey-goosey. And, <laughs> and 99% of the time, that is exactly what you want Alex McQueen to do, because as an improviser, he is just amazing, amazing. And yeah, the thick of it, he... I, I have it on good authority that, that Alex, when it was Alex's scenes, uh, he was the only person that Armando had to leave the room uh, for <laughs> because Armando would ruin takes by laughing. He just found, <laughs> he just found Alex just, it, you know, and he is, you know, he is kryptonite, Alex. He is extraordinary. But, but, but yeah, Hunderby just couldn't be that, that show because it was all about poise and it was kind of, we, we were all speaking like we were in a novel in a way, and that was the point. Mm-hmm. So there had to be, there had to be something almost written about about how these characters spoke, and that was part of the joke. So I think sort of in the first weeks, Al had to had to get out of the the thick of it world and into the Hunderby world, and I. But it was <laughs> it was enormously good fun watching him try. <laughs> And, and kind of, you know, wrestle wrestle the world of Hunderby to, <laughs> to 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 his to his breast, and you know, I mean, he's he, he's so he's so hilarious, and it? it was, but for all of us, you know, that there was no there was no template really for something like that. It's very, um, I think before before Hunderby, the kind of the big costume comedies I'd seen were big and buxom and sort of uh, enormous characters, you know, in caricatures. Whereas I think the style, certainly the performance style on this was very small and very, very micro and very hushed. And so all the normal tricks of a, of a sort of a period romp didn't apply, you know. So it, yeah, it took a bit of adjustment on all parts. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the good things about it, really. It's, it doesn't feel like a sort of parody where there's kind of modern references. Like it feels very... Yeah committed like people are sort of playing it straight but obviously saying and doing these ridiculous things yeah it's the difference between sort of a parody and a pastiche and i think i think hunderby is probably a pastiche in the sense that what it what it wants to show you is how much it loves the source material and jules you know is is, it just intravenously sort of sucks that stuff up i mean she it's it's i think it's her happy place that kind of that 19th century kind of gothic world and a parody, I think, stands outside of material like that and sort of, you know, throws throws stones at the conservatory, you know. But I think <laughs> for a pastiche, you've got to be inside it and 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 love it. And I think that's kind of what we did. Yeah, definitely. Because there's a scene where I think Helen has to tell Fogarty that that she doesn't love him anymore, and oh, yeah. it, you you do genuinely feel quite upset for him because you get quite invested in the relationship you know yeah. obviously because it, it's it's so ridiculous but you do watch that scene and think you feel bad for him because he's so heartbroken yeah yeah it was um yeah that I, I remember those scenes were actually really sort of sad and me and me and uh, alex roach kind of grew really close and re- you really find yourself sort of preposterously and sort of investing in 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 these uh roles and and that relationship in particular it was it was sweet and and also she is sort of so abused as a character throughout <laughs> throughout the series you can't help but sympathize with her and and you know alex is such a brilliant actor she sort of you know she was really young when she did that and we, i think we all had a good sort of 10 years on her you know but i think she sort of saw the style of playing almost quicker than the rest of us did that actually what you just have to do is just play it straight and play all the play all the beats that you you play in a drama you know 
And um, yeah, I, I I I look back on it really fondly. And it stopped, it stopped feeling like a comedy, weirdly, although we knew we were making one. Sort of actually, after a while, you kind of go, well, I don't know, th- this is this is the kind of comedy I want to be doing, but it's also the costume drama I want to be doing too. <laughs> you know, the <laughs> thing that, the thing that, you know, preposterously draws you in. And I remember Dan Taylor's character, um, the slave Ken, is it Ken? Um, uh, oh, Jeff, oh Jeff, 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 that's it. Yeah. Ken. But, but the, the, <laughs> the, the, the way the, the way the Jeff character ends up is, you know, he ends up being lynched basically. And, and it's, um, it's dreadful and sad and uh, uh, shocking. And I remember Alex McQueen saying those, that final scene, because he's basically in love with Daniel's mm-hmm. character. It's a very sort of, it's a very sort of silently requited love. It's so sort of oddly sweet. And the mm-hmm. betrayal of that death is just, um, uh, I remember Alex saying he was, uh, yeah, he was really moved and um, shaken up by it. Yeah. Cause it's a big sort of, um, cuts really you know they're all saying oh let's hang him and then you just suddenly see it and it is quite harrowing it's not funny in the slightest it's horrible yeah 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 are there any particular moments for you that that stick in your mind as like a favorite or maybe a favorite line that's kind of still in your head over the years um i remember the first line i had to do the very first scene i think was me and jules uh (laughs) um the line where i'm talking about uh Edmund's constipation and we're talking about mm-hmm. could you, I I I could cajole the lolling bolus <laughs> that line <laughs> yeah that was that exchange in the hallway was the first thing with me and Jules shot and I remember I remember we both couldn't get through it it was uh th- th- that line in particular cajole cajoling the lolling bolus <laughs> is just so it's so exquisitely written about something so foul <laughs> and Jules is a terrible corpse she she uh yeah she just goes and it's such a it's such a a brilliant um it's so flattering when she does that it actually just makes you want to make her go even more and that's the sort of uh that's the aim of every scene make Julia laugh <laughs> then you know the, the the radar is 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 on um so I remember that because it was just straight out the traps working that was really satisfying I remember yeah I am arriving I remember that shagging scene really <laughs> worked there's one scene where I remember uh she uh, Alex ends up sucking my finger over mm, yeah uh, and I can't remember the context of it but I remember I remember sort of improvising that or I said to her sort of look I'm gonna do this thing would you do you mind do this? I, I just remember Alex saying that you don't have to ask, do whatever you want. It's that sort of show. <laughs> and she was, you know, as a 25 year old actress, that is, um, that probably wouldn't be said today. You know, it's kind of <laughs> Hunderby. Um, I think if Hunderby had any intimacy coordinators or, uh, <laughs> uh, or, or sort of post me too uh, sensitivities, it would be a very different show. But what was there was a sort of very, very intimate trust um, mm-hmm. And I think everyone felt, I really hope everyone felt well looked after and we all really got on and had drinks after every day and uh, sort of were staying in the same hotels and stuff. So it was, it was a very, it had to be a very sort of tight show. And yeah, I, I, I mean, t- too many to mention. It was I, I, all the horse stuff as well. I loved because I'd never ridden a horse and just getting, I horse can't Matthew. ride. 
Yeah, horse Matthew. Um, <laughs> and I remember just jumping off a horse was very, very satisfying. You um, you tweeted something recently about a makeup trailer exploding. What happened oh, there? Oh, yeah, dude. That was on the second one. That was on Hunter B. Revisited. yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, our, our fucking trailer blew up and it blew up overnight. And they think it was a sort of faulty boiler or something. When when a makeup oh, wow. when a makeup trailer goes, it really goes because there are aerosol cans and everything. You know, it's it's the it's the hairspray basically on there that just <laughs> um, lights it up. And uh, we all were woken up by a a sort of six a.m. text just saying, "Stay in the hotel, don't come." There's been a you know been an incident. And, um, oh wow! Yeah, no no one was no one. Thank God it happened overnight, so no one was injured and. You know, but it did, it did like take out one of the sort of trailers alongside, and so it was. Thank God it did happen overnight. Um, but we that they lost a lot of wigs, and particularly the wigs, which are hugely expensive. And so that day we were all driven down to an amazing wig maker in, in Shoreditch on Curtin Road, and uh, and our uh, incredible um, makeup uh, head of makeup. Vanessa, I think her name is Vanessa White, um, basically uh, overnight recreated all the wigs. Wow. Uh, and I think it happened in week two. So that, so we'd filmed quite a lot. And I think if you look very carefully, you can see the kind of disparity between some of the wigs. But you really, you wouldn't notice. it's. And that is, she sort of saved that production to some extent. because um, oh, I had to have emergency wigs made. Emergency well. wig surgery, yes, for everyone. <laughs> so, yeah, the specials were a few years later, weren't they? Was it fun to kind of just go back to it all? Yeah, it was amazing. I think um, I think after Hunderby, because it, so, it was so critically lauded and we sort of won some awards and mm-hmm. Julia quite rightly was fated. I think I think she she's always quite loath to do a second series of things. I yeah. just think she quite likes the she quite likes the clarity and completion of one one story, you know. And going back to characters mm-hmm. isn't always but but there was a sort of I think she she had a, a clear idea and so she gave it a couple of years off and then suddenly um came up with these scripts with Barunka and they were just amazing and yeah reese shearsmith was on board and (laughs) it was kind of getting the gang back together and that was yeah that was just hugely hugely satisfying and yeah it was it was wonderful and i think sort of while she was filming that she'd kind of written the outline for camping as well and asked me if right if i'd be up for that and so it was we shot hunderby and camping within about three months of each other which was oh okay um, yeah, which was amazing. So that year was just a, a sort of back-to-back Julia for me. And, and I think I think looking back at camping, you can certainly sort of, in my performance and hers, you can see that was that camping was the result of two people who'd worked sort of very, very closely together on a previous production, just being able to mm-hmm. to carry over that, that sort of simpatico into another one. Um, yeah sure before we sort of move on to camping I just wanted to ask you one more little thing about Hunderby I just wanted to ask you about those um prosthetics that you had to wear (laughs) in the specials was that what was that like it was horrible is what it was like it was um (laughs) I always I I, we got a prosthetic specialist from uh, who was actually doing Spectre at the time the James Bond film right and he would be doing my hit my head and then going off and doing Christoph Waltz's head for for Blofeld, sort of after in the final the final shots. So we were very lucky to have him. But he said 
it was really interesting that that uh, some actors really come alive under prosthetics. Um, Paul White has, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. um, the more layers of, of prosthetics that you put on him, suddenly you just see him just bouncing off the walls and he's he's doing the voice and he loves it by all accounts. Whereas for me, I found I became <laughs> really introverted and really, uh, really quiet because your field of vision is very narrow. You're wearing this stuff on your head. And, and, and what happens when you wear um, like disfigurement masks like that? Is that mm-hmm. even though everyone knows it's a prosthetic, everyone stays out of your way. So when you go to lunch, oh, right. you just see kind of the sea of people part and people, you know, j- just jokingly, people just kind of going, Ugh. but actually the, kind <laughs> of the sum total of, of like 100 people doing that a day is that it makes you actually quite, um, quite introverted and you go into yourself. And so I would sleep a lot in between takes and uh, it feels quite imprisoning. Um, so I was very glad and it took, you know, two hours to put on and now to put, take off. And so it's, um, it's not an enormous amount of fun to wear it, to be honest, but it is very releasing. It's very like, as a character, it's very, uh, it was, it was great to play something else, you know, and it felt like playing, I don't know, Quasimodo or something. Um, so that gave, because yeah, he has a full on, um, breakdown really, doesn't he? And the specials, it all goes. Mad. Yeah. He has a, yeah. And there, actually there was one scene, I think very rare for Julia, but there was one scene that we cut was just, I think in the end it wasn't needed where I sort of rampage in a church shouting at God. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was that I remember really letting go on that and it being really sort of intense and moving and, being in this real church, just screaming at God for what he'd done to me. And I think in the end it was just, it was just, yeah, we didn't need it because um, self-loathing was, was fully apparent in every other scene. So when Julia told you about camping, what kind of stage was it at at that point? Had she written most of it? Or? Well, Julia's, Julia's always very mysterious in what she does. You never quite, I mean, mm-hmm. I remember we were doing, I only knew about the new camping probably three weeks before we shot. Um, okay. And you just, and, and you know, and that, that that's simply because you know Julia needs it needs to be sure it's there. I think, and it's only when it's finished she'll mm-hmm. press the green button, and that's that's how she maintains the kind of amazing quality of stuff. And camping, she mentioned it, yeah, um, maybe sort of week two, week three of Hunderby, and I remember thinking, oh well, that that sounds really fun. I only knew it as an idea there which was you know a bunch of us go off camping and it you know a bunch of couples and it all breaks down and i you know it's just immediately sounds fun and it's a yes but 99% of the time those those ideas never come to fruition you know or they're delayed or it goes to someone else but we finished and suddenly the scripts arrived and um and they were great and it was different from Hunderby cuz uh it was quite unfinished not in a bad way but there were mm. some of the dialogue was kind of quite place some of it was brilliant and you wouldn't want to change it some of it was quite placeholdery partly because julia mm-hmm. had written in a hurry but she also was getting together a very specific bunch of people who she knew she wanted to improvise and she was going to direct this mm-hmm. one and i think she was very very intent on us finding finding it on the day um you wouldn't direct uh, you wouldn't improvise plot because you can't because you you have to have a, a schedule. But you know mm-hmm. the actual sort of dialogue was left uh, very very loose in places, and and so it was clear that you know 
we were just going to have to have an immense amount of fun to, uh, to, to, to find it. And, um, and we did. So what was it like working with her as the director on that one as well? It was, well, it was brilliant because I, it didn't, she, she, she wears that, that certainly with camping, she wears that sort of very lightly, that, that, that director's hat. Um, mm-hmm. And we had a very experienced uh, director of photography, a guy called John Sorapia, who, would just intuitively would know how to shoot it and would, I think, advise Jules on how to shoot. So she didn't have to worry about that. So she's a, a completely performance driven director, really. Um, and always just has a, a shit hot DOP to, you know, mm-hmm. look after the, the visuals. And, uh, and it was, it was great. And, you know, I mean, that, that show more than anything, because we were playing these, these kind of crazy lovers, um, <laughs> It was just all about all about performance and just remaining in the moment. So I I don't actually really remember much of her as a director because it was just you, we were just dealing with each other as as actors really, and and it just it it flowed sort of like nothing I've ever done before. It was yeah, it was uh, it was rather it's kind of magical. So when you got the script, was was Tom kind of there on the page, or did you develop that character a lot with the uh, the double denim and everything? <laughs> I think things like the dub, double denim were there, so all the signifiers were there, and uh, you know it's clear that he was having a midlife crisis, and <laughs> clear that he'd had hair plugs, and so you know all yeah. these things. <laughs> You know, there, there, there was a lot of a lot of scaffolding to sort of hang stuff off. But I think I think sort of during performance, we worked out his his kind of weird mid Atlantic kind of drawl, and uh, he kind of I, I always kind of thought he was like sort of he wanted to be like almost an MTV presenter in his own show. Um, <laughs> there was just something hyper relaxed about him that didn't look relaxing one bit. Mm-hmm. He sort of yeah came alive that 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 sort of someone doing an impersonation of what they think a cool person is and that being almost precisely sort of 15 years out of date um that 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 sort of arrived kind of um or as we went along um and and very quickly it was kind of yeah it became very easy to sort of improvise with him in a way that in the way that Hunderby just would wouldn't have been sort of improvisable really. But yeah, yeah. sort of got, got under his skin quite easily. Yeah, I love the way he speaks. I, I watched the first few episodes again last night for the first right. time in a while and I, I wrote down um wicked brecky spread guys. Wicky brecky brecky spread, that's it, yeah. <laughs> and bigger poles, I wrote down. Bigger as poles. Well. Yeah, bigger poles. <laughs> I think weirdly, I think I think both of those are Julia's writing. So right, okay. Um, all the kind of, I think a lot of the more sexual stuff we riffed. The, when he says it's a kind of, I don't know, my life is a kind of wall to wall fuck fest and stuff. Like, <laughs> um, my life is a sex dojo, and I, I don't know, it's yeah. it just kind of. Um, I, I think looking back on it, me and Jules talked. We, we bonded quite early on uh, around Step Brothers. You know the the John C. Riley Will Ferrell right, yeah. film. There's that particularly of the of the sort of Judd Apatow kind of school, that mm-hmm. is a very, although I'm, I, I don't actually know if it's Apatow, but that sort of very loose style um, is something that both of us, both of us adored and just find hysterically funny um, of people trying to talk confidently when they're clearly out of their comfort zone, basically. 
And I think, yeah. I think looking back at camping, particularly with my character, there's, <laughs> there's an awful lot of, um, of kind of Will Ferrell, John C. Riley sort of bullshittery, you know, and, um, just, just kind of, it's almost like a, someone, someone try, yeah, someone trying to give the impersonation of being confident about what they're doing. When in fact, they they have absolutely no idea, and they're a sort of ten year old yeah. child really trying to be an adult. I think there's a there's a lot of that. Um, yeah, he has a lot of confidence when he's kind of with his friends at the campsite, and then when they actually go into town, yeah, and you know he's totally the exposed. ridiculous, the lederhosen. He's yes. just completely insecure around other people. And yeah, that's it. Like terrified that someone's going to take Faye away from him. That's right. Yeah, he's he's sort of it's like sort of your first girlfriend basically just the mm. the you know the, as as a guy particularly you just feel so proprietorial and sort of um terrified that you'll run away <laughs> or at least I did when in my teens. You sort <laughs> of uh you you end up just behaving ridiculously, you know, because you you're, you're terrified the dream will end. And again, are there any particular moments that were your favorite at all i i really like the bit in the shop with the is it ian asbury memorabilia the asbury material yes uh, well that 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 i was about to say that was the best day there, there were right. two good days the first day was of uh, the first day of shooting was the bar actually where you know, oh, we're dancing, dancing around and, they... and we had to <laughs> snog and it was just, oh god and so it was really in at the deep end but it needed that because you know it was only going to get worse. So we kind of really hit the ground running and we had such a good day that day. It was clear that, you know, we were going to be fine. I think. Yeah. The Ian Asprey. So the, uh, that scene that the, the antiques, uh, shot, the antique shop owner is a guy called Steve Evans, who yes. I started off doing sketch comedy with like 15, 20 years ago. Um, Dutch so, Elm Conservatoire. That's right. Yeah. We were in a group called Dutch Elm mm. Conservatoire and Steve actually formed the group. So I owe him right. an awful lot because that was sort of the first thing I did in comedy. And Julia, and he'd been in Nighty Night just in a small part. And Julia yeah. and, and Julian Barrett, her, her partner, have always had a a, a uh, fascination with Steve, as <laughs> as we all have, because he, he is the funniest <laughs> man and the funniest looking man. And he is... He's got a kind of, for people who don't know, he's got an incredible Buster Keaton sort of stone face. He doesn't have to do a lot to be incredibly odd and funny. And it was sort of his scene. And um, when we turned up, there was very little on the page. And Julia just said, let's just all do this in long takes and make it all up. So all the Ian Asprey stuff was made up by Steve. Okay. And it was because, I think because Jules was wearing a cult T-shirt. I think okay, and so and Steve saw that, and I think it was the cult, and um, and started talking about Ian Asprey, and then <laughs> uh, and absolutely everything we pick up and find in there, and I think maybe the engage the wedding ring, the engagement ring was like the one thing we had to work towards, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure virtually all that scene, there's no original material, it's all it's all improvised, and Steve was just wow. Steve was on fire, he was so funny, and I remember vividly. Because uh, it's very hard if you're a day player, because Steve was with us for one day. We shot that whole bit in one day. And it's very hard to kind of parachute into a production and do what he did, which is just kind of find the tone immediately and just hit the ground running. And I remember at the end of the day, he left and everyone gave him a massive round of applause. And our 
our producer, Ted Dowd, who does all of Alan Partridge and all of Julia's stuff, looked at me and just said, who the fuck was that? (laughs) And it was like Superman had visited set and just kind of, and then flown out again. It was one of the most impressive, uh, impressive sort of day player sort of exhibitions I've ever seen. So it was very, very came, came in for the day. And yeah, and just it. and just stole it and left. And and um I think uh yeah, it, it, for me it was just very personally satisfying to see an old friend just um be absolutely as funny as they can possibly be on a TV set. Because it's very, very hard to do that. Very hard. I think you tweeted something a while ago about some sort of deleted scene with a lot of fake vomit. Oh yeah, yeah, that was yeah. We did again, yeah. I suppose in in each Julia thing I've done, there's uh, yeah, there's been one deleted scene, and um, it was I think I think it exists in in the sort of in the final version of camping. I'm I'm sick in Oakley Pendergast, the boys' kind of mm-hmm. anti allergy helmet. But yeah. that was just in the original. That was the prelude to what was a much, a much larger explosive vomit, um, okay. where basically uh, they hooked a a pressure jet to the side of my face, and uh, then had an <laughs> enormous amount of oxtail, cold oxtail soup, oh. um, attached in a, in a massive vat. And the special effects team uh, they shot from the opposite side, so it looked like when I opened my mouth this high pressure jet of vomit exploded into Jonathan Cake and Julia Davis's face. And we sort of just coated the inside of a Volvo and we did it and it took hours to set up and you only really have one go at it. And we did it and it didn't work just because it didn't look right. They then set it up all over again about two weeks later for a reshoot, new car, knew everything, did it again. And then in the end, <laughs> Julie just said, you know what? We don't need it. Um, <laughs> I think it was sort of, I think what, what was interesting is it never quite, it looked too comedy. It looked too, uh, it looked too Team America almost, you know? And and actually right. what's funniest about camping is the more, the more sort of psychologically horrific uh, and extreme places it goes. Not, not necessarily the... <laughs> Not necessarily the kind of physical gross out. It's the kind of the ma- the, the the psychological gross outs are much more, uh, mm-hmm. you know, are much more sort of affecting. So I, I I just think Jules just thought probably don't need it, and it's in the end it's too much. It's the same joke twice in a sense. One more question about camping: the ending. Spoilers for anyone listening who hasn't watched camping, but I mean you should have if you're listening to this. Um, <laughs> In terms of what happens to Tom, it's it's sort of ambiguous. Did you was it kind of decided that something specific had happened to Tom at the end, or was it deliberately? Oh, it could be anything. I think it was deliberately. It can be anything. To be honest, I mm-hmm. by the end because we shot it right at the end of the shoot, I think, and so much had happened to Tom by that stage. Mm-hmm. I I slightly lost sight of the ending. Like for me, the ending was just like this Nicholas Rogue crazy psychotropic kind of you know uh downfall of civilization (laughs) that that almost what happened to tom didn't matter because the whole thing had just descended into you know violence and chaos and And it was almost like no you don't know what's happened to tom because um 
just because. But, but I was also kind of, it was only afterwards when I watched the assemblies, I never quite knew quite how far David Bamber went with his character. <laughs> um, like I never saw the naked stuff. I never saw the dancing. <laughs> I never saw all that amazing once in a lifetime stuff he did. And he really, it's his character that really sort of, you know, puts the willies up here. And well, in every sense, I suppose, but uh, <laughs> you know, by the end, um, I thought, well, I mean, clearly it looks like Tom might've gone in a pie or a sausage. Uh, and that, that feels like the appropriate, the appropriate ending to all this, a bit of sort of um, kind of abattoir horror. But then I always kind of, I always wondered whether sort of Julia and I would reprise those roles. Cause you know, they were such fun to do, frankly, but I just don't, I don't think we ever, again, Julia doesn't like to go back. And I, I think anything we did now would just feel, um, uh, we just feel kind of after the Lord Mayor's ball a bit, but I always had a sort of dream that actually Tom had survived, and she <laughs> continues to uh, continues to dominate him in the most unhealthy way. I quite like the idea of her pers- persuading him to transition, and um, <laughs> and then halfway through the transition, get bored, and just and Tom is just left, uh, you know, on his way to becoming a woman. But uh, um, yeah, she's gone off him. Yeah. Um, in that final time. episode, yeah. he's, he's put through a lot, isn't he? He is put through <laughs> Just a lot. To and, please her. And I think sort of, and I think if we ever did, you know, we, we occasionally fantasise together about sort of going back to them and kind of very easy to do those, do those voices and do that, do that <laughs> sort of, do that double act. But actually, I don't think, I don't think, I think with Hunderby, the story was really moved on, but I, I don't think you could really move on the camping uh, story all that much because it's very very it's a very self-contained um yeah mm-hmm. sort of collapse of civilization which which uh probably doesn't need much more saying about it you know yeah i think when something feels like a complete story i think julia just seems to know to just yeah. leave it really yeah, doesn't she, she? Does. she does and you know I, I i just think the kind of you know the financial rewards of a series two or a series three just aren't as you know, it's not important to her, you know, it's, and she's in the very, the, the very brilliant state of, she has a new idea, Sky generally, but pretty much anyone will make it and will want to mm-hmm. get involved. So I think she backs herself to, to, as a storyteller rather than a sort of, you know, the queen of a, a franchise, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So, so I'm a big fan of Home. Oh, um, if there's if there's anyone listening who hasn't seen it, it's on all four, so people should go and watch it. But um, do you want to maybe, for anyone who hasn't seen it, just explain what it's about and sort of where you came up with the idea? Yeah, it's it's basically about a um, a sort of uh, kind of middle class couple who go on holiday uh, with their son to to France, and they come back through the Channel Tunnel. And they go back to their little garage and dorking and open the car boot and there's a enormous Syrian refugee in the back basically and <laughs> he um and he lives with us very much against my wishes I'm a sort of hard brexit uh, mm-hmm. uh, xenophobe and my wife played by Rebecca Staten is is much more forgiving and it's sort of about uh the journey of this the Syrian refugee Sammy played by Yusuf Kukur and, and uh, his mm-hmm. journey through the sort of the asylum system, but also kind of his journey through our family and with our family and our own sort of uh, journey to acceptance and um, and stuff. And uh, 
uh, yes, I, I, I wrote the first episode a long time ago, about sort of five years ago, uh, just a kind of pilot idea. And um, I sent it to Adam Tandy, who's my producer, who does all the League of Gentlemen stuff and did the, th- did the thick, mm-hmm. thick of it with uh, Amanda Inucci way back when. And, uh, and he really committed to it. And we, uh, yeah, Channel 4 got hold of it. We did a pilot. We, we've shot two series. It's been... It's been an amazing, amazing ride. I don't quite know where we stand with it now in terms of a series three, just because the world has changed a bit, and um, mm-hmm. and Channel Four unfortunately aren't uh, really commissioning anything at the moment because they've they've kind of gone into a, a bit of a sort of financial lockdown themselves. So we'll sort of pick up that conversation, I'm sure, once once things begin to return to normal. But uh, we'd love to do a sort of series three. Um, there are sort of plans there for it, but. Uh, it's been it's been an amazing experience, and um, I'm just I'm very very glad we got series two out just before just before lockdown happened, basically, uh, because it is without without drawing too crass a, a a sort of metaphor, it is about a guy in isolation <laughs> um, <laughs> trying to sort of find his way through a new world, and I think to some extent that is what we are all going through now, and so it's um. Oddly, it's yeah. I've had a lot of people contact me saying it's uh, it's a really satisfying thing to watch uh, while we're all in isolation because it's sort of um, <laughs> it's it's a story about sort of feeling trapped and yeah yeah. We've all got the same frustration going on at the moment. As my producer Adam said, we are all in the back of the Audi at the moment, which is pretty much um, pretty much it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smashed Prawns in a Milky Basket. You can find us on Twitter at Julia Davis QOTD and you can find me at It's Sophie Davis. This podcast was edited by Alex Bondek with original music by Martin Ford and Matt Bond. <laughs>